you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. As many of you probably know, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke since the Advent season, which began about a month before Christmas. And, and we are going to be continuing in Luke until Easter, and so uh, this morning is no different as we find ourselves in Luke chapter 6. And, and a couple of things that we've noticed about Luke is that, that Luke has a theme of fulfillment. Luke is writing a gospel to show that in the life and events surrounding Jesus, Things that have been promised and expected for centuries and generations for the people of Israel are beginning to come to pass. They're being realized in Jesus. In Jesus, the history of God's redemption is fulfilled. We've seen that Jesus is the first man of a new creation. The second Adam. And this new creation exists through him redeeming the old creation. A new humanity is established as he redeems the old humanity. He's the second Adam, the embodiment of the people of Israel, and he's greater than all of the prophets who have preceded him. And so last week we took a closer look in chapter 4 at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And if you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you can find it on our podcast. But, but today you've noticed that we've skipped ahead all the way to chapter 6 the middle of chapter 6 even. And the reason for doing this is not just because, it's not because we don't think chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 have things that we can learn from, but it is strategic in a way. Today marks the first Sunday on the church calendar in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a word that refers to to revelation, and and specifically the church has used it historically to refer to the revelation of Jesus to the people. And so in the season of Epiphany, we look into Jesus that he might be more clearly revealed to us. And in the middle of chapter 6, Jesus begins his first extended teaching that we find in the Gospel of Luke. And in the teachings of Jesus, his character and his will and his purposes come through clearly. In other words, Jesus reveals himself through his teaching, and so it only seemed appropriate that in the season of Epiphany we would take a closer look at the teachings of Jesus. Unlike many human teachers throughout history, Jesus' teachings were not only wisdom given from him to others that they might benefit, but they were also the very rules that Jesus lived by. Simply put, Jesus was one who practiced what he preached. He embodied all of the things that he called others to participate in. And so as Christians, we're called to do the same, to practice and obey what Jesus, our Lord, has taught us. Who among us this morning who has maybe grown up in the church or has been involved with the church for any number of years has heard or been called to or heard someone say that they just want to be more like Jesus? Who said in your neighborhood parish, man, I just think we should try to be more like Jesus. I just want to be more like Jesus. In 2019, my goal is that I'll be more like Jesus. 
It's a common thing that we say, and I think that if we want to be more like Jesus, we'll have to consider his teaching seriously. And this morning's teaching, for many of us, will challenge us. It might reshape our perspective on what it means to be like Jesus. So let's set up the context for where we are in chapter 6 of Luke. Chapter 6 takes place relatively early in Jesus' ministry, which began at his baptism that we read about in chapter 3. But it doesn't mean that just because it's early in Jesus' ministry that he doesn't yet have a significant following. When he was baptized in chapter 3, what we see is that the heavens were ripped open and the voice of God the Father boomed out as masses stood on seeing Jesus baptized and a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And so there were a bunch of people who witnessed this, so naturally a buzz was created. And then after we went to the temptation narrative in chapter 4, just after that, Luke tells us that the word continued to spread about Jesus. And that Jesus was regularly teaching in synagogues all throughout Judea and Israel. And that when he was teaching, he was being glorified by all who heard him. And then most notably in chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue there and he opens up a scroll from Isaiah chapter 61 and he refers to Isaiah chapter 58, which are both prophecies of the people of Israel, for the people of Israel, about the coming of a Messiah, a Savior, a King who would come to redeem Israel, who would establish this kingdom of peace and grace. And this is what he read in Nazareth, his hometown. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, after he sat down from teaching, he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing which was his way of telling the people in the synagogue in his hometown that I am the Savior from God that you've been waiting for. And the time of God's great salvation and redemption and bestowing grace and his spirit upon people is right now. And so naturally, even more of a stir was created, especially after he implied that this good news was not only for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile nations as well, and then the people from his hometown heard him preach this, and then they tried to kill him. And so, so then we see after that, along with teaching in synagogues, along with causing a stir in his hometown, along with the heavens being ripped open and the voice of God the Father speaking, Jesus is traveling from place to place in chapter 5. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving people's sins. He's teaching those who are around him, who are questioning him about God's law and God's kingdom. So in the place where we're reading in chapter 6, though it is early in Jesus' ministry, already a great multitude of people are following Jesus. 
Some are even beginning to call themselves his disciples. Most, if not all of these people, most, if not all of these people are Jewish, and they all know that Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah they've been waiting for. Now, maybe they don't know if they believe that Jesus is this person, but they know that Jesus believes he's this person. They're still probably trying to decide whether or not we can trust this man, whether or not he's good, whether or not he's really preaching God's truth, but they're listening nonetheless. Some were probably getting excited, others were beginning to get nervous, but all of them were probably very curious with every passing day, wondering, could this Jesus be the one? They were wanting an epiphany of sorts, that Jesus might be revealed fully, that they might understand fully who he is. And so let's start reading with that in mind in verse 20. Jesus, with these multitudes following, it says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So in these first three verses, Jesus pronounces four blessings. And and these blessings, to some of us who are maybe a little more familiar with the Bible, sound familiar. Because they're very similar to a group of blessings that we find in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel. Both are referred to historically as the Beatitudes. But Matthew's Beatitudes are different. When Luke says, blessed are the poor, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When Luke says, blessed are you who are hungry now, Matthew says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so this raises questions. It's raised questions for the last 2,000 years in the history of the church. The question being, did one of the authors just get this wrong? Were they both recording the same sermon? Was this the same event? Were both authors recording the same event and one of them just got it wrong? Or or did one of them add or subtract in order to make a theological point to their readers? And and there's really two primary ways of of answering that question. And both of these ways are, are common among Orthodox Christians who believe and trust the Bible. The first argument is simply that Luke and Matthew are referring to the same event that one of them either adds the spiritual elements of the blessing, blessed are the poor in spirit, or removes them in order to make a theological point. And it's probably more likely, if that's the case, that Luke removed them to make a point. But if we read the whole Bible, we'll know that both messages are consistent with the call of God, that both the poor and the poor in spirit have God's blessing, that both of those are groups who God cares for, the poor and the poor in spirit. But the second 
second argument is that Jesus, being a man who's going from town to town, preaching regularly, as an itinerant preacher of sorts, probably preached a lot of the same things to a lot of different groups of people in a lot of different places, and that depending on what he's trying to communicate, maybe says one thing a bit differently here or another thing differently there in order to make different points that both have merit. And, and that is what I believe is the case. I'm not saying that's what you have to believe the, is the case, but as Christians, what we must do is say that, that Luke, an author who is inspired by God's Holy Spirit, has written for us a faithful and trustworthy account of what God wants for His church to hear as a teaching from His Son. And so for today, we will consider that blessed are the poor, not just the poor in spirit. Blessed are the hungry, not just those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, we go back to the text. Jesus pronounces these four blessings on his followers. The materially, the materially poor, Jesus blesses. And he says that though they may not have a penny to their name, they, they may not own any property, they may be begging on the streets, though they are poor, they have ownership in the kingdom of God by faith in Him. Blessed are you who are poor, Jesus says. He uses the second person, you who are poor. He's referring to even people in the crowd who He knows to be poor. He's saying, if you're following me and you're poor, you may not own anything to your name on earth, but you have ownership in the kingdom of God. You have riches beyond compare as a member of my household, though you may not belong to a great household on earth. The blessing on given to the poor here is different than the other three blessings. In the other three blessings, we'll see that Jesus expresses a delayed sense of gratification or reward in those blessings. But, but here, it's not the case. Though you are poor now, through Christ you are rich now. Though you may have nothing, through Christ you can have the kingdom of God. Right now, today, because Jesus has inaugurated this kingdom and he's, he's saying if you trust in me, you're taking part in it. You have ownership in it. You have a stake in it. You have an inheritance in it. This is good news for the poor. This is good news for the poor that though they may have nothing to their name, they can have everything that God desires for them to have. They can have a stake in the kingdom of God. For the poor, God's creation that has been cursed since Adam's sin in the garden has yielded no fortune for them, but the new creation and the kingdom of God being established is for them. If we're familiar with the Old Testament, this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't be a, a, an extremely strange thing to hear a man who's saying he's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament to, to have a, a heart for the poor, to give grace to the poor. All throughout the Old Testament, God shows that he cares for the poor deeply. All of Israel's laws were built around benefiting the poor. 
farmers weren't allowed to harvest the borders of their fields because those were for the poor to come and harvest their grain and, and to eat of it. Every seventh year in Israel's history was, was a year in which, which debts were forgiven and, and which the storehouses were filled up to feed the poor among Israel. The psalmists write that God is a God who will one day make the poor rich. Hannah, when, she is, when her womb is opened and, and it becomes pregnant with Samuel, she cries out in this beautiful song and, and she talks about how God will lift the needy from the ash heap. The prophets said that the Messiah's kingdom would be marked by liberation and wealth for the poor. And so here, Jesus, who has proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, is telling the poor that they own the kingdom. And so in this, not only does he have good news for the poor, but he's saying the time is now. The poor are blessed now. No longer do they have to wait for the kingdom of God to come and be given to them. I'm offering it now. And then Jesus has promises for the hungry and the sad that, that are our future promises. When the kingdom of God is fully established and consummated. So, so that is for us to believe that, that when Christ returns and, and the new heavens and the earth are, are made about and that God's kingdom is fully in order, that then the hungry and the sad will find their bellies full and their hearts made light. He says that his faithful ones whose bellies are growling now and whose lives are marked by sadness now as a result of either poverty or circumstance, that there will be a day when, when they are fully vindicated in their suffering. Though they suffer and feel as though they're wasting away, one day they will feast and be satisfied. Though they weep and mourn and groan in sorrow, one day they will laugh in the goodness and victory of God at God's table. And then the final blessing is a little bit different than the first three. Jesus pronounces blessing upon his disciples when they are persecuted and hated and reviled and mocked on account of following him. But he doesn't just say they, were, they will be blessed and will receive reward. But this is where we find the only commandment given in this text. He tells his persecuted followers, he says, when you're mistreated, when you're abused, when you're mocked, when you have violence committed against you, when you are hated by others, he commands them to celebrate, to rejoice, to leap for joy. He calls them to celebrate their status as those who are hated. But why? Because God's prophets were marked by being hated. God's prophets of old were, were killed and beaten and tortured and hated by their audience for preaching God's word faithfully. And Jesus says that when his disciples experience that, when they experience this earthly trouble, they should rejoice knowing that they are doing the work of God and preaching God's truth. So in Jesus' kingdom, which is God's kingdom, the poor have ownership and they have riches. In Jesus' kingdom, that is through the gospel, the hungry will have full satisfaction. The depressed will have 
laughter, and joy. And those who are hated now on account of God's truth will be honored and dignified in the end. Jesus has been healing the sick and telling religious leaders that he spends time with sinners and the poor because he's come for the sick rather than the well. And now he's showing that that is is in line with all of his teachings. He's come for the poor. He's come for the needy. He's come for the lowly. And now he continues. And he says this. He says, but woe to you who are rich, beginning in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So maybe the first three verses of the text we found encouraging. Though most of us in this room are not poor, most of us in this room do not have hungry bellies, we find it to be good news that God cares for the poor. That one day those who are hungry will be satisfied, but but we may feel differently when we hear these woes that Jesus has proclaimed. We see the word woe means sorrow or distress. So Jesus is proclaiming that the rich will have sorrow coming their way. As will those who are full, those who laugh, and those who are well thought of. So before we start trying to understand exactly what Jesus is saying in these verses, we need to consider something else. In this text, is Jesus referring to eight different groups of people, or is he referring to two different groups of people? The eight being the poor, and the hungry, and the sad, and the hated, and the rich, and the full, and those who are laughing, and those who are well-liked. Or is it simply two different groups, the, the lowly and the powerful, the poor and the rich, the insider or the outsider? And I think that it's clear and in line with the gospel, in line with all of the the Old and New Testament, that here Jesus is, is speaking in general terms about two groups of people. Those who are powerful and those who are not. Those who are insiders and those who are outsiders. Those who are poor and those who are rich. Because we must be wondering as we read this text, is the good news of God's salvation that's available through Jesus, is it, is it really only available to the lowly? Is it only available to the materially poor? To the lonely? Are people in high positions and with social power and with good standing in their bank account, are they all destined to be condemned? Well, if we... If we look at the New Testament, we can see that, that both powerful and rich people are made part of God's kingdom. Matthew, one of the twelve apostles, was a tax collector, likely very wealthy, a disciple, an owner in the kingdom. Zacchaeus, though a wee little man, was a tax collector and had a not-so-wee bank account, if you will, 
and he was a follower of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man, but he had the wealth to provide a tomb suitable for Jesus after his death. And Nicodemus was a powerful and wealthy man, being one of the chief religious rulers of Israel and and became a follower of Jesus. So being rich and powerful is not a total barrier to being a Christ follower. And there were certainly poor people in, in the scriptures who did not trust in Jesus. Instead, they cheered on his crucifixion and disbelieved his resurrection. And those people will surely not have a stake in God's kingdom. So Jesus isn't proclaiming a one-size-fits-all socioeconomic test for whether or not one is in his kingdom or out of it. But that doesn't mean we don't need to consider these blessings and woes seriously. To the rich, Jesus says they have received their consolation. This falls in line with Jesus' other teachings on wealth and money. If we were to read all the Gospels, we would see an account where Jesus tells a rich young man that in order to gain the kingdom of God, he needs to sell all of his possessions. Because Jesus knew that his love for money was the very thing keeping him from devotion to God and the Gospel. He told his listeners that they can't serve both God and money. They would have to choose one to be their master and that loving money would be their ruin. He praised a poor widow for being generous in her offering and he despised the rich who gave a lot of money because it was not a generous percentage. So Jesus also went on to say that that it is more difficult for a rich man to enter into his kingdom than it would be for a camel to pass through the eye of a sewing needle. So there's a real tension here that we need to sit in. Jesus is warning against the destructiveness of riches. Provided this context of consolation having been received, which, which what Jesus means when he says the rich have received their consolation, he's saying that the rich who hoard their wealth, who hold it with a tight fist, they have made their wealth their reward. Those who find their security in what they own and what they have and what their IRA statement looks like are not finding their security in God's gospel. So you can have an earthly reward, but but if that becomes your reward, you will not have a heavenly one. This is why we preach on generosity so regularly. Lovers of money simply cannot be lovers of God. There is no category in the Bible for that to be the case. If we hold our finances with a tight fist, if we put our happiness in our rising account numbers, in our increased possessions, if we put our hope in our retirement portfolio, we've not held on to the things of God as our hope. We've not found our joy in the works of Christ. We've not put our hope in his resurrection as our only security. So if you're sitting in this gathering on the western side of downtown Houston, you are likely rich in the standards of the world. Be warned. Do not allow your wealth to become your consolation. Because Jesus promises it will be your ruin. If you're rich by the standards of the world, you're likely also full. 
You're not missing meals. And if you do not allow generosity and compassion and hope in Christ to be your guiding principles, then there is a promise that one day you will no longer be satisfied, but you will be hungry. It's an eternity waiting for the proud and wealthy people that will be marked by poverty, hunger, and sorrow. The third woe is to those who laugh now. And their promise that mourning is weeping, mourning and weeping is coming their way. And when Jesus says to those who laugh now, he's not simply referring to people who have a good sense of humor. He's not talking about people who are given to a lighter heart, to a spirit of happiness and gaiety. He's talking about those who are callous to the plight of the poor, to the plight of the hungry, to the plight of the sorrowful. He's talking about those who are sarcastic when seriousness is called for. And those who mock God's word and God's people. Their laughing will not last, the Lord says. And finally, Jesus warns those who are well-liked. In that they are like the false prophets. Jesus here is not talking about people who have a lot of friends. He's talking about powerful, smooth-talking men and women who tickle the ears of those around them for personal gain. It's not a sin, church, to have friends who like you. I hope you have some in your neighborhood parish. But Jesus knows that his gospel is an offensive one and that following him is a difficult task. So if everyone is speaking well of you, it is likely that you have strayed from his truth in one way or another. I mentioned earlier that it's common for us to say that we want to be like Jesus. And I also mentioned that Jesus is one who embodied all of the things that he preached. Jesus was poor in his earthly life, homeless. He experienced hunger. He was described in the scriptures as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And he was hated by many reviled and abused and rejected as the greatest of all of God's prophets. His life and message were so offensive that he was killed. In his final minutes, minutes he was desperate for God, crying out in anguish. He was thirsty on the cross. Poor, hungry, sorrowful, and rejected are the attributes of our Lord who we so desire to be like. Do you still want to be like him? Do you really want a life like his? Do you want to be lowly and humble and hated? Do you want to be considered a fool at best and a devil at worst? Because Jesus was. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells those who are following him in chapter 14 that they ought to count the cost before they truly decide to be his disciples. Because he tells them it will involve suffering. With all of this in mind, let's look at those Beatitudes in Matthew that we discussed earlier. Because I think it will shed light on the ones we've read today in Luke. Matthew writes in chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, you do not have to be poor to have possession in God's kingdom. But you must be poor in spirit. Which means not to be marked by complaining and groaning, but to be marked by a neediness for God's grace, desperate for His salvation, helpless without it. Jesus says that it's difficult for the rich man to enter into his kingdom because it is difficult for someone who has never experienced lack of anything to truly understand a poverty of spirit that makes them groan and desperate for God's grace. It's difficult to beg God for grace to feel desperate for his presence if you've never felt desperate in your life. So if you don't feel desperate, if you don't feel needy, if you don't feel helpless without God's action, without His presence, if you don't cry out, if you don't feel bankrupt by your sinfulness, if you've not looked upon the blood running down your Savior, hanging upon the cross in an empty tomb of His victorious resurrection as your only hope in life and death, then you might be finding all of your consolation in other things. You might do well to begin selling possessions. You might do well to increase in generosity. You do not have to be hungry to be satisfied in God's kingdom, but you do have to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. You do not you do have to know that God's word is the only thing that will truly sustain you. For man does not live upon bread alone. You do need to have a spirit that growls and aches for communion with God. See, in Jesus, we see that he has become poor that we might take part in the riches of his kingdom. He's become hungry so that we might be fully satisfied forever in his presence. He's become a man of sorrows so that we might experience an eternity of laughter and blessing. He's been hated and therefore we can be loved by the Father, blessed in his presence, taking part in his kingdom. He's borne the weight of our failures, both the failures of the poor and the failures of the rich. He has suffered on behalf of of the hungry and on behalf of the full. He's been mocked for both the outcast and the insider. And the call is for us to worship him, to join him in lowliness so that others might experience the riches of his grace. And when we are suffering, we can look upon Christ glorified upon his throne to know that his promises are sure. In that day, we can leap for joy, knowing that the glory afforded to him is the glory promised for us. 
We can look upon him on the throne and know that his poverty has been replaced with a crown. His frailty and his hunger have been transformed into the satisfaction of a king and of a warrior. His sorrow has been replaced with joy. His rejection replaced with worship and authority and belonging in his father's house. The king of all power has become powerless. And he offers us places as princes and princesses in that kingdom so long as we suffer with him in lowliness and in faithfulness. The good news of Jesus is that the kingdom of God is for all who would trust in him, poor or rich, happy or sad, hungry or not. All who would trust in his life as their righteousness, his death as their atonement, his resurrection as their victory, and his ascension as their guiding light. It's for those who are poor in spirit, and it's for those who are materially poor. It's for those who hunger for righteousness and those who have hungry bellies. But the gospel demands for all sacrifice. To be like Jesus is to preach God's truth. And to preach God's truth uncompromised, we will face opposition. We will likely be hated for it. We will be rejected for it. People will not believe us and sometimes they will attack us. But we will be with him one day in glory. Happy and full. Glorified and enjoying the fullness of blessing in his kingdom that he's given us to share in. Jesus said that encountering the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds buried treasure in a field and he goes and sells all of the things that he has so that he can buy that field. And so the call of this text this morning is really to realize that Jesus' kingdom and that the call of Christ is so good and so glorious that we would be willing to give up anything and everything to take hold of it. The call is that we might become lowly in order to experience the fullness of His highness. The call is that we might become concerned with one thing only, that we would be a single-minded people, and that one thing is a resurrected King who has removed our reproach. He's removed our sins in order that God might call us beloved sons and daughters. And a final beatitude from elsewhere in Jesus' teaching. He says this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and believe it. Won't you believe this morning? Let's pray. Father, would you empower us by your spirit, according to the merit of your son, to believe that your gospel is good news for us this morning. That your call is, It is not one that we might take in suffering in vain, but that we might suffer along with you and therefore know you more. That we might suffer with you and therefore invite more people into a kingdom where they can have a stake in in your goodness, in your grace, where they can be satisfied and made well, where they can have ownership and blessing, where they can be glorified according to the work of your Son. Would you mark Sojourn Montrose as a lowly and humble people desperate to proclaim the goodness of God's grace to others? 
Would we be willing to face attack and, and hatred on your behalf? Would we not seek after the approval of men and women? Would we not seek after the satisfaction and security of riches? Would we not consider our next meal our only hope to be satisfied? But would we be a people desperate for your word, dependent upon your spirit, relying upon your grace, and satisfied at your table? And would you make us more like your son? We dare ask that you would make us more like Jesus, now knowing even more what that means for us. I pray that we would still be a people who desire that, that we would still be a people who groan to be like your son, who know that though the road of following you may not be easy, it is worthwhile, and that there is no joy that compares to it. Would we find everlasting joy and satisfaction in your house, among your people, by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.